Great. If you've got a Bible, please could you turn to Luke chapter 13, um, verses 10 to 17. It's where we're going to be today. Um, and I think we're going to crack straight on. If you've been with us the last uh, few weeks, I've uh, got some good news for you today. We're through the judgment bit. Okay, just so you know, that's good. There's lots of wisdom there, challenge for us, and we've got to hear it. It's a major blessing. We've heard the last two chapters, but let's face it, they've been, there's been a heaviness to them. We're on to freedom today. We're through, from judgment through to freedom. There's something in that straight away. But anyway, okay, here we go. Verse 10. On a Sabbath, I'm reading from the New International Version, by the way. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things uh, he was doing. Okay, so let's start just by um, working out what's really going on here. And it's, uh, I think it is true to say... A, often when we come to the Bible, that passages in the Bible aren't always exactly what they seem. Because this passage here, on the surface of it, seems to be uh, quite familiar to us, almost repetitive. Uh, if, we've been, uh, if you've been at these talks about Luke's Gospel, you know this Gospel well. We seem to have here another healing story, yet another. We've had a number of those. Uh, we've got another one of those, Jesus healing someone. Also, we've got this idea of Jesus offending the religious people about this Sabbath uh, stuff that we'll go into a bit later. Again, we've seen this before. We've, we, we, this has been here already. And so the question's got to be asked then straight away. Why on earth does Luke feel that he needs to put yet another story like this in his gospel? And that is a, is a good question to ask. A good question we come to the Bible often is, why is this passage included in the Bible? Okay, Luke had lots to stick in. John said that Jesus did more things than all the books in all the world could record. Luke chose to give us yet another story like this. So with that question in mind, why is this in the Bible? I think when we go to it again, we have a look at it again, we can see there is something unique in this passage. And actually, maybe there's more going on here than I've just summed up. Because from some angles, actually, this story doesn't appear to be given us like a, a healing story at all. This story, in one sense, isn't really about healing. This story is about freedom. That's what this story is about. Let's have a, have a little look at how Jesus speaks here. Verse 12 He doesn't say, you are healed. He doesn't cast out the illness. He says, you are set free from your infirmity. And to make the point a little bit later, in verse 15, he uses this this picture, this comparison of how he's helped this woman is a bit like how people untie an animal from a stall. The animal's all tied up. You untie it. Now, he makes very clear The comparison, not that she is an animal. No, the whole point is that she's worth so much more than an animal. But that's the comparison. And then in verse 16, he he says it very clearly. Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, well, what should happen to her? She should be set free on the Sabbath. To Jesus, this woman's problem 
is that she is tied up, she is bound, she's imprisoned in some sense, and he frees her. Okay, that seems to be what he's saying. Now, you might wonder why he uses this language. Obviously, you've got this sense in the past is that there's, there are spiritual factors to her illness. It says she was crippled by a spirit whom Satan has kept bound. We've seen that in Luke as well. That Luke, uh, the understanding of, of the New Testament is that there are, there are, uh, it's a holistic approach to the human being and there are different factors behind lots of things. And here, clearly here, there are physical and spiritual factors to this illness. However, I think a more likely reason why uh, Jesus uses this language and Luke picks up on it is because of the very nature of her illness and actually that fits very much into the idea of being bound and tied up. I mean, think about this woman for a moment. Think about how she would have looked to people around her. What is wrong with her is that her, her frame is bent right over. She's literally, her body is imprisoning her. She's contorted. She's hunched. And it would be obvious to everyone. You could see it. It's just a picture, in a sense, of being bound in this woman's uh, very uh, posture. And when she was healed, I think freedom would be a very good way of explaining what's happened to her. She, when she's healed, she could walk freely now. She can run freely now. Even just the idea of her standing up with her head up straight that she hasn't been able to do for 18 years is a picture, a clear visible picture of what freedom looks like. And I think when we see this, Something else is seen in this passage. This is at the start, we just think, well, what's happening here? What's the point of this passage? I think we can get actually to something else that's going on because the woman then is not the only person in this account who's bound and needs to be freed. I don't know if you can have noticed that. There's another character here, and he only gets one verse, but I think he's in exactly the same boat, but just in a slightly different way. And he's the synagogue ruler who we come across in verse 14. I mean, here you've got this guy, okay? He witnesses an incredible miracle. It's an incredible miracle. Uh, and not just is it an extraordinary thing that's happened, that she have his jaw dropping, but it's an, a massive blessing to this woman. Something really happy has happened, okay? Well, surely that would be the case. Her life is considerably better than what it was when she turned up at the synagogue. So you'd have thought anybody would surely have a little bit, at the very least, of joy and happiness for this woman's uh, improvement in her condition. Has he? Not in the slightest. It's not any sense of happiness. What's the phrase? He is indignant. He's cross. Let's put this in black and white how it is. This man would have preferred for this woman to have left the synagogue crippled and bent over still. That's his preference. That would have been made his job easier. That seems to be his mindset here. I don't think there's many less attractive people in the Bible than this guy. I mean, that's just awful. You've got to ask the question, what's happened to him? We've got a picture here of someone who is also bound up. And it's not in his body, it's in his very character. Something has happened to him to cripple his very spirit. It's who he is inside. And just as this woman would seem unattractive, probably, and, and, and kind of, kind of uh, deformed almost to the outlookers, onlookers around her, I think we're meant to see in this man someone whose character is exactly the same. And the point of this passage then is that Jesus brings freedom. That's clearly the point of the passage. But it's not just to people like this woman who are sick and disabled. Actually, it's people who are like the religious leaders of that day as well. I don't want to miss the obvious here, and I want to make this statement straight up at the start. If you're here today and you're sick, 
if uh, you, you're suffering from an illness or a disability or anything. I want to be really clear. The obvious here it still needs to be stated. Jesus heals people today and can free you of your illness. And we'd love to pray for you later. In fact, more than that, even as I'm speaking, if you just speak out, Jesus, Jesus, free me. It's, uh, it's, it's known for him just to come and heal people as, as I'm talking. But be aware of that stuff. We, we've had people come to church central meetings uh, with uh, depression, with uh, muscle, serious muscle problems, uh, with epilepsy, with cancer, who've left those meetings freed from those illnesses. That's a, that's, I'm not just talking about what we know Jesus can do. That's happened at Church Central me- meetings, okay? We'd love to pray for you in that case. Jesus can bring freedom to your condition. However, what I'd like to focus on today is this kind of freedom, I think, that relates to this synagogue ruler that he doesn't take, but that is open to us today. And I want to ask three questions before we're done. I want to ask, firstly, importantly, why did this synagogue ruler and the religious leaders at that time, why do they need freedom? What do they need freedom from? Uh, Secondly, how can we be like them today? How can we, uh, in a sense, need the same kind of freedom? And thirdly, how can Jesus bring us that freedom? And then at the end, we'll see how we respond to that. Okay, does that sound like a deal? Is that okay? Yeah, is that kind of what you came for today? Good. Yeah, good. I'm, I'm great. <laughs> First thing then, why did um, the religious leaders need freedom? Well, the reason is, quite simply, to put it bluntly, is because these guys were bound up by a religion of rule-keeping. That's what we see in this passage, and that's what this guy's affliction was, so to speak. Now, just to move on here, I need to make something really clear. There is absolutely nothing wrong with keeping the rules. Just so you know, the rules are there for our good. We all know this, and there's a sense of order, you know, that's important. This, this sermon does not have the subheading, In Defense of Anarchy. Okay, that's not where we're going here. Uh, rules are not bad in, in themselves. They're an important part of life. However, I'm sure for everyone here, there has been times in your life where you, at least in your perception, the rules have been like an imprisonment or like a restriction in some sort of way. I remember saying things like this. Going to this school is like being in a prison. Anyone identify that? Yeah, the younger ones. Okay, even worse, maybe, my mum and dad treat me like a slave. <laughs> I have to be in at this time, I have to do this, you know. Some of the young ones are thinking, oh, you're right, preach it, good work, Johnny. Just, just so you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying your parents treat you like a slave, I'm not saying your school's like a prison. Um, yeah, I'm sure that's the case. Um, it's probably, and I, when I felt like this, it's probably much more to do with me than the uh, external situation. Um, But when rules become overbearing, we can at least think in those terms of them somehow imprisoning us, binding us up, tying us up, because they seem to limit our freedom so much. So there is a link here with freedom and rules. Now, having said that, I would have to concede that life in the 21st century in England, uh, I don't think we've got much of a case here to say that the rules in our country imprison us and lock us up. Now, I, I realize at this point I'm probably going to veer from some people, and some of you will feel this is not completely true. Um, but when we look at the other legal systems around the world, um, I think you could say that our national legal system gives us quite a lot of freedom. It, it doesn't poke itself into every area of our lives. I mean, obviously, the door of our, our land would uh, stop us doing certain things uh, in the public sphere, but it's probably retreated quite a lot, actually, from what we do behind closed doors. And uh, we, would, we would understand that we've got all sorts of freedoms, according to the law. We've got freedom over who we should marry, free speech, freedom of opinion, and that sort of thing. Now, I know some of you will say, oh, you know, know what they're doing. The government are after this and that and big brothers everywhere. Yeah, okay, I understand that. But when you look comparatively, I think that's probably the case. 
But we've got to understand this. While we understand that rules can be seen as imprisonment and restrictive, and that maybe we don't see the full brunt of that, for these religious leaders in this day, they lived under a very different set of rules to what we live under today. What law did they live under? Well, they lived under the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, the law given in the Old Testament, okay? Consisted of 613 commandments. If you're thinking, I thought there were only 10. Well, that's the 10 commandments, tip of the iceberg, really. 613 of the laws that they've got. And they were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, thousands of years before this encounter. And uh, they formed the, uh, the legal system of the ancient Jewish society, but also uh, were seen as a binding law of, on the moral behavior of Jews at this time, and even today, uh, and that's how they would have been uh, seen. And from a Western perspective, let's be clear on this, these laws they were under were incredibly invasive, actually, into their lives. It wasn't just what you do out there. No, it's everything. So the law of Moses, these 613 laws, there would have been governmental laws. There would have been laws about the structure of society, how you deal with criminals, what constitutes a, a crime in that sort of sense. But also, there would have been others. There would have been some incredibly practical laws. So even how you deal with sickness, there were laws about that. If you have mold in your house, there were laws about that. Any students here want to take note of that? Okay, this is where you go. Some good stuff in Leviticus about that sort of thing. But it's, it's this practical stuff invo- invading your very home. Okay? There was obviously lots of laws about how you did religion, how the rituals and the sacrifice system worked. That was all rules. There were laws for all of that. And that's not even to mention the moral laws that really didn't just stick out like they do nowadays for our public life. They really did invade into everything, into your sex life, to how you treated those around you what you did behind closed doors, even in some cases, how you thought was under the law of Moses. So if someone made it their goal to follow this law to the letter, it could definitely be viewed from one angle as some form of bondage or imprisonment. We use a different freedom image. Uh, This is like a huge weight to carry. Think of this woman bent right over. She was bent as if she was carrying a massive burden. Devout Jews had a huge burden to bear. And it was called the law. That's what it was called. Now, I think we've got to say one more thing to fully understand this guy's bondage, as I've put it here. And that's to ask the question, why then did this synagogue ruler and the religious leaders of Jesus' day feel they needed to take this law so seriously that they would have responses like this. You, you might be breaking a Sabbath law. I don't care if you get better. That's the problem. Why? Why did they feel that they needed to keep uh, the, these rules so efficiently? And although I think this statement is slightly simplistic, I think at the heart of it would be true. For these guys, their, their motivation to obey the law was to do one thing, and it was to win the favor of God. That was the deal that was going on here. The law of Moses is described as part of a covenant. And I think for us nowadays, it might sound like a funny word, uh, we understand covenant mostly from marriage. And I had the pleasure, and some of us did, uh, of being at Emma and Tom's wedding yesterday. Uh, And in a covenant of a marriage, what happens is both parties have certain sides to what's going on. So they both make promises, don't they? sure you understand that. You never get at a, um, a wedding, like one of them who goes, I promise to better for w- worse, for sickness or health, whatever, all that sort of stuff. And the other one goes, no, I don't really promise. And then they go, you may now kiss the bride, you're both married. You don't get that. It's, it's a clear covenant involves two parties um, uh, with, with kind of uh, things to do on either side. 
And how this covenant worked in the Bible was it was like God approached Israel, uh, this nation. He told them, look, I've got something on the table, an offer on the table for you. You can be my treasured possession. You can be my, my special people in a special relationship with me. You can know my favor like no other nation knows it. They're like, well, great. You know what? You'd be a fool to turn that down, wouldn't you? Yeah, we'll, we'll take it. And we'll, we'll have that enthusiasm. Okay, what's our side of the bargain then? Okay, your side of the bargain, well, that's this. 613 commands, the law of Moses. Basically, if you keep these rules, you will win and maintain the favor of God. Now, I fully understand for a different Jews, this may have been a little more nuanced than this, but clearly in popular Jewish religion, uh, this would have been the case. And for these guys here, they are modeling, particularly synagogue, they're modeling this approach to the law. For him, it does not matter whether this woman gets better or not. He doesn't care because there's bigger fish to fry. If we don't follow the Sabbath rules, well, we could lose God's favor as a nation. That's where he's going from here. So why then uh, do they need freedom? Because these guys are bound by seeing religious rule keeping as the way to impress God. That at the core of it seems to be what's going on here. And there we have our bondage. There we have our slavery that these guys are under. That's question one. Question two then is this. How does this relate to us today? I would imagine there are very few of us here that are living consciously under the, uh, the minutiae of the requirements of the ancient Jewish law. Imagine when you see a little spot on your arm. You're not quick, I need to check whether it goes red when I poke it or something like that. As it says, we, we don't do that, do we? I imagine for most of us that would be the case. But even if that is the case... Most of us, I think, would approach life in a very, very similar way to this. And I think that would be true of a whole load of different groups of people who might be here today. I mean, it might be that you're here today and you actually are from a religion different to Christianity. That could be the case. And in that case, I imagine that in a loose but generally accurate way, I've probably described your uh, experience of how you would relate to God. If I do these things... If I avoid these things, I can gain God's favor now and in the life to come. That's how most religions sort of work. It could be, though, that you're here today and you wouldn't class yourself as a religious, religious person at all. You might, even not know if you, uh, you might not even be sure if there's a God out there. Well, strangely enough, I still think that you may well operate in a similar way. For all of us, I think is the case, that we have a whole bunch of rules that it's like they've been deposited in our heads completely against our will. And uh, we'd often know of those things and call them our conscience, I suppose. And uh, many would argue intellectually against the, this sort of thing. However, when you look at how people live, there are very, very few people who live their life without the underlying assumption that behind the fabric of reality, there is a moral code that is unchanging and ultimate, and we ought to obey it. There is an obligation for us to follow it. And if you don't believe in God today, I imagine there would still be some sort of feeling in you that says, if I live up to this moral code of some sort, this code of ethics, my life will go better. And if I don't, it won't. And that may well be now, and it may be in some form of afterlife that might or might not be there, but there is some sort of connection like that with these rules. So it would be relevant to you as well, I think. And there's one more group of people here, and I assume it's the majority of us who I think this is very appropriate to as well. And it would be you here who are Christians. 
Now, let's, let's be clear here. I would have thought for most of us who are Christians, you've sort of telegraphed this message. Haven't you? You, you know where this one's kind of going. You've sussed this one out. Uh, and you're thinking, okay, I, I, I know this sort of stuff. And I know we're free from the rules. I know all the grace stuff and things like that. Do you know what, though? It is so easy for us to fall back into exactly this form of thinking that we see in this passage. If we don't constantly dwell on God's grace and remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel, it's like we have an automatic default setting as human beings to go back to how do we relate to God? We impress him by keeping the rules. It seems to happen kind of, kind of without us even wanting it to. Don't do this, do this. That is how we impress God. And if that's the case, for any of us in those categories, just like the synagogue ruler in the gospel account, I'd say an indication of that and a sign of that will be, we will, if you live like that, you will find your very character buckling under the weight of the law. I think we can see three distinctives. There may be more, but three distinctives I think that would be signs, indications that you're, you're, you're under the effect of this sort of stuff. What do people look like who are under the law in this sense, living their life, trying to impress God by following the rules. Well, firstly, it may well be that they become quite uncaring of other people. It's what we see in this guy in the story, most, I think. It doesn't mean we don't ever do the right thing, or we don't do caring things, but how you can tell this is you're doing all the right things, but there's no feeling behind them. It's not out of love for anybody. It's like, no, because I've got to do the rules. And I might be giving this money away to charity, but I'm just doing a tick off the list. I don't care about it. I might be signing up first for the rotor for the new baby in the church, but I don't really care about it. No, no, I just need to be doing these things. It's rule keeping. It leads us to actually being very uncaring and uncompassionate. We would not want to identify ourselves with this guy in the chapter. Okay? He might be an extreme version, but I'd ask you, can you spot anything of that in your life? Maybe it leads to something different. Maybe it shows itself in a more driven approach to life. Driven people will drive themselves onto a goal, and they'll drive themselves harder than they can actually go, and they'll do the same to everyone around them. You'd often see this, I guess, uh, in the workplace, someone who really wants to climb up the corporate ladder in that sense. And it's almost like, I'm just going to do that and everything else falls apart. My family I don't care about them and I don't care about this. I'm going here. Well, actually, drivenness, even in that setting, if that were you, in work, that's the case, or in any area of your life, well, that comes from this sort of thing. There's an expectation on me that I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And it all depends on that. In the movies, Often it would be someone who's a character like that, maybe classically, uh, doesn't spend any time with his kids, say, his father, and uh, he's driven at work, he's at work all the time, and it comes to the crux, and someone might say to him, often this would be the case, look, you're living like this, who exactly are you trying to impress with this life? And light bulb moment goes on, and he's got a dysfunctional relationship with his parents or something like that, and he goes, I'm trying to impress my dad, and I don't need to, and he spends time with his kids and lots of hugs and nice music. That's how the film goes, doesn't it? Well, for you, if you're driven like this, I'd ask you this, if you're going this way, this way, this way, and everyone is suffering around you, who are you trying to impress? If the answer to that really at the bottom is, I'm trying to impress God, well, no, you're under the law. Or maybe, f- finally, it might just be that you're weighed down by guilt. As you realize, just very simply, you are not living up to the standards that you are living under. You know, Indications, I'd ask you just to check yourself. Are those things in your life? If they are, I think we can say probably there's a shade of this synagogue ruler in you. 
And I'd say at the same time, I've got some brilliant news for you today. Jesus can set you free. It's fantastic. Even this morning, he can set you free. So let's move on. Third, third point. How can Jesus bring us freedom then in this whole uh, deal? Well, Jesus can bring us freedom because he offers an, an approach to God that is completely different from the impressed God by following the rules method. He just has a different way of doing things. There's a different way of relating to rules. There's a different way of relating to God. And he offers it to us. And I think the clearest place to see this is in a, a, the book of Galatians in the New Testament. There's a whole passage around this. It's all about this stuff. But I just want to focus on three verses as we kind of draw to a close, which is uh, Genesis, uh, Galatians 3, uh, 23 to 26. Galatians 3, 23 to 26. You might want to turn to it because there's some stuff around that you might want to check with as, as we go along. But I'm just going to uh, read these three verses and just unpack them for you before we apply this. So then we can really see how this works here. Right, Galatians 3, 23 to 26 says this. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith. Let's stop it there and let's see what this means. What's Paul's point here? Well, you might notice similarity of language here. His point is what kind of I've been saying all along. The law, he uses the term, it holds us in custody. It locks us up. There's a kind of the law can bring us kind of imprisonment to us. There's lack of our freedom. But Paul goes a little bit further and clarifies something here. Because you might be thinking that the reason the law makes us in prison is because we don't really get it, that this is an accident, that the synagogue ruler was, was uh, misunderstanding the effect of the law. That it was kind of, God looks down and goes, oh no, you've got it all wrong. I didn't expect it to be like that. No, Paul's point is this. This is completely deliberate. In fact, it's the entire point of the law is, in a sense, to imprison us. God wanted us, I'm going to have to clarify this in a minute because you're going to struggle with this one. God wanted us to experience bondage to rule keeping and being under the law to achieve a purpose. It's no accident that the Old Testament law was impossible for the people of Israel to achieve. We look through the Old Testament, we see him fail over and over again. That's no accident. That's deliberate. And at the same time, and this is the bit I'm going to have to back up here, is that does not make it massively unfair of God to make such unrealistic demands either. You know, I think, how could that be? How can you be held responsible for things you cannot do? Well, to see that, we've got to see a big picture of God's rescue plan for history. That's what we've got to see here to get this. Because you see, the picture painted in the Bible, and we sung about it a little bit uh, right at the beginning, is of a God who is a God of love. He really is a God of love. He's not a heartless God who wants to make our lives difficult, but he's a God who loves people. He, he, he treats us as more valuable than anything else in all his creation. That was his choice. So that's God on one hand. But he also paints a picture of us as people who have rejected God. We've rejected his just demands, and we've decided to live our own way in this sort of stuff. Now, naturally... If we were the way that God made us, the law would not be burdensome and crippling to us. It would not be. It would be an absolute joy because we'd be able to obey it and we'd be able to benefit from its wisdom. Have a listen. When we turned away from God, and all of us have done this at one time or another and in our lives, we've become corrupted 
our very capacity to do what's right has shrunk and diminished from that point. Think of it like a, a drug addict um, who starts taking a hard drug like heroin. As that, that drug addict starts, has, takes heroin a number of times, they're not just clocking up experiences. What they're doing is they are changing themselves as they do it. They're changing their, their own desires until actually they get to a point when they cannot stop taking it. It's like their capacity to make reasonable decisions has been shrunk. Shall I shoot up or shall I look after my children? Well, there's a sense in which that decision, has the, the capacity to make a good decision there, has been shrunk or almost completely destroyed because of the things that they've done. Jesus put it in exactly these terms. Anyone who sins, which is all of us, every single one of us, is a slave to sin. We become slaves. Our natures are enslaved to it. Sins aren't just like collected like points on a driver's license. No, that's not how it is. They corrupt us and they stop us being able to live the way we should. And this is a terrible problem for God who loves us. How is pain at how we got ourselves into this mess? And any God who loved us would want to rescue us, surely, from such an awful situation. And God does. Clearly in the Bible, he does. But there's a big problem here. We refuse to admit that anything has happened to us. Maybe it's how you're feeling right now. You're thinking, I think I've got this right. That guy, who maybe has never even spoken to me in my life, is saying that somehow there is something wrong with me. He's saying that I'm a sinner, that I've become lesser in my capacity to do what's right by my own mistakes. And I find that incredibly rude and incredibly offensive. It might well be people are thinking things like that even now. We don't want to admit anything's gone wrong. And actually, a reassurance, I think, is we think, well, is he right? Or maybe, is it how I think? And we, what we often do is this. We look around us at the world and all the other people, maybe in this room, you're thinking it now, or your friends or people you know, and you think, okay, am I a sinner? Look around. Actually, look, we're all the same. And I might even be quite a little bit better than all these people. He's wrong. He's clearly got it wrong. Look, I'm, just, I'm doing pretty well on the average. But the problem is, that's exactly the point here. It's the point of this whole idea. Yeah, as we look around other people, they are like us. Well, much of a muchness morally, kind of some a little better than others, but really pretty similar. Because actually we've all sinned and we've all become sinners. Imagine using this comparative line of reasoning if you were a prisoner uh, serving a life term in a high security prison. Imagine you looked and thought, well, am I a bad person? Okay. You look around and think, well, you know what? We're all much of a muchness here. We're doing okay. I mean, I only killed two people. That guy killed like five. And he dressed up as a clown when he did it. I'm all right. I'm okay. Now, our moral status is not necessarily vindicated by our company, but by an objective standard outside of our company. In our case, actually, as we look around us and we look inside us and we see a general moral slackness, it's an indication of the size of the problem. It's not an excuse for us. Because there is one outside all of this, whose standards are just and who expects more from us. Actually, it's more than we can achieve at the moment, but we should have been able to achieve it. So how then does God rescue people who won't even recognize there's a problem? Well, the first thing, obviously, he's got to get them to recognize there's a problem, and this is exactly what the law was for. You read those passages in the Old Testament, law after law, what is this here for? Well, it's to get us to recognize it. Because although the process of 
coming under the law's bondage, although that process is kind of painful and it's tough situation, it's meant to bring us to one realization. It's meant to, realize, to bring us to the realization, we cannot do this. My own skill, my own ability, my moral power is unable to carry this weight. We cannot meet these expectations. So what do we do? What's the only thing left for us to do? We call out to God for help. That's the point of the law. As we call out to God for help, we come to that place, we actually understand that there is on offer the rescue plan that God has put into place. And that rescue plan is the plan of sending his son to earth to live a perfect life, to meet the requirements of the law, and to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins. For some of you here, maybe you've never really understood the, the relevance of the cross. Yeah, I, I can't really see how it works. Don't really see the relevance to me. Probably because you don't understand the problem you're in. The whole point of the law is to come us to a place where we're thinking, I need a way out. I need a salvation here because it doesn't come from me because the weight's too heavy. I need someone to lift this off. Actually, if we come to that place, it's not there's a whole load of different religious options out there to fix the problem. Christianity and Jesus is utterly unique. He's the only one who even claims to be able to lift the boulder off your back. So let's return to Paul's line of thinking in Galatians. He says this, that the bondage of the law was meant to lead us to call out for God's help and from that place putting our faith in Jesus who's the only one can, who can help us. And then look at what verse 25 says. Now that this faith has come, faith in Jesus, we are no longer under a guardian. Here's the freedom bit I was talking about. Jesus frees us from the prison of the law. He takes the weight off of I'll only love you if you keep these rules that we are living under. You know, the Lord is pictured like this, this harsh guardian who, who imprisons us. He imprisons us. He, he puts us in this tight situation. And in this case, when we come to faith in Jesus, this guardian is relieved of his duty. Come on, off you go. Your purpose has been served. Free from him. And the last verse tells us how this works. Verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith, in Christ Jesus. As those who've been forgiven in Jesus, our status changes from prisoners and slaves to children. That's what happens. And that's a twist here. I like twists in stories. I don't know if you're like that. Because you might have thought that what this meant, freedom from rule keeping, meant that the rules are no longer important. Yeah, we can do what we want. Fantastic freedom. That's not what it's like at all. That's not what this is saying. But the context has changed and that brings real freedom. Because obeying God is always important. But obeying God as a child is a completely different kettle of fish from obeying God as a prisoner, as a slave. Obeying God in a family is, much more, is a much more uh, pleasant experience than obeying a master in a sweatshop. Can you see the change? Obedience is still very important for a child, but the atmosphere is different. In a family, if it's working properly, children obey their parents primarily out of love, not out of fear. Children don't live life looking over their shoulder in case they slip up and get punished with the stick or the whip. Children know at the baseline level their parents are for them because of who they are, not what they do. And therefore, even in a family, if there's discipline done, it's by a father who loves you not by a master that wants to drive you into a gra the ground. That's massively different. That's freedom. 
It's a completely different way to live. Paul talked about grace, not like something that God does to us, but a, 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 a new country that we live in. He said that by faith we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. It's like before we are in this land all crunched up looking over our shoulder. What, what will he do? What will he do? And we walk in, oh wow, I can breathe, I can stand up. Woman, I'm in the realm of grace. He loves me because of who I am. Does it mean I'm not going to obey? No, of course not. He loves me. I, because he loves me, I love others. This is, but it's a different thing. It's complete freedom. The oppressive weight of law is gone, and we can know freedom. And so just like the woman in this passage, she came to Jesus bound up, bent over, weighed down, and she left free. Some of us too, we were in a similar boat. Bent down, bent over by seeing rule-keeping as the way to impress God. You know what? You can be free. Jesus offers you total freedom from that situation. I need us to just to apply this then. How do we get that freedom? Two things. And the first, for most of us will have done it, but it is the most important. And it's got to be said. Freedom comes from acknowledging the bad things that we've done, the way they've corrupted us, and saying sorry to God, and then accepted that Jesus paid the penalty that we deserve to pay for those things when he died on the cross and deciding, saying, I want to follow you now, Jesus. In short, it means becoming a Christian. That's what becoming a Christian is. Not joining a club, it's accepting Jesus' offer of freedom. If you're not a Christian here, that offer of freedom is open to you through Jesus today. It might be you're ready to take that offer today. We'd love to talk to you about that at the end, some of the leaders from the, the, uh, the site here. It might be that you think, well, okay, sounds promising, but I've got some big questions about that. You know what, that's okay. And uh, I'd encourage you, though, to take it seriously, to come and ask us those questions. Or possibly uh, sign up for an Alpha course in, starting in October, a few months off, but we're going to be running that in the city centre on Thursday evenings. Or our Bolting Big Questions course in Selioak on Monday evenings. Because you know what? We'd like to address your questions, and we think that at the end of those questions, there's freedom for you. And that's really important. But there's another thing, and it's even for you who are Christians, what else do, how else do we accept Jesus' freedom? Well, we've got to continually remember what Jesus has done for us. It is so easy. I'm sure you know this. I know this, looking at myself, to go back to our old ways. You might have been a Christian for years. Still, we slip back into it without even knowing. It's a natural kind of automatic default position. It's our kind of human reaction, I suppose. And, and we'll know this because actually I think this is the key thing is if someone looked at our piety and our religious effort and our moral, moral things, they said, who are you trying to impress? If we were being honest, we'd say, God, that's who I'm trying to impress. If you see that in you, we've got to come back to his grace. Can I just remind you, can you just soak this in? I'm sure you'll be soaking this in all through the worship, really. But you don't need to impress God anymore. You really don't need to impress him. Because someone has impressed him. His son, Jesus, was very impressive to God. He carried the full weight of the law. He came as one under the law and survived its bondage. He could carry that weight. He carried it successfully and flung it off at the end of his life as he died and rose again. He took the expectations of the Father. And by dying for us, he does a swap. He takes all our failure and he suffers for it. And then he gives us his blamelessness. Regardless of what we've done, we get the prize from accepting Jesus of God's favour, not based upon our performance, but given to us straight away. If you're a Christian, God loves you. 
what if I do this? If I do no, 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 no. God loves you. He's for you. He'll never try to trip you up because of what Jesus did. We don't follow rules to impress him. You've probably heard it a million times, but some of you need to hear it again. You're feeling driven in your life. God is say that he's impressed with you already. You don't need to do those things to impress him. Run after holiness, but don't do it to impress God. Hopeless idea. You feel you're lacking compassion. Well, you know what? It's not about following the rules. It's the one who loved you, and he loved you so much he sent his son. Look at him, see him, and then react to others in the same way. You want to be released from guilt. People here weighed down with guilt. Still, I've done that. I know I shouldn't feel guilty. I want to say it again. You might need to hear it many more times. You might need to tell it to yourself every day. Jesus has paid for your sins. How many? All of them. Past, present, even the ones you do next week. Gone. Finished. Kaput. No more guilt is necessary for you. I think that's a cop-out. You know, I, I did that. I've got to pay. Someone paid already. He paid with his life. He paid with a, a separation from his father. Put it on Jesus and know his freedom.